Okay, let's go. The recorder's on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. I'm recording live in my living room again, at home, following the Songkran holiday in Thailand. I don't want to spend any time today talking about COVID-19. I think people are, like, definitely COVIDed out. Anyway, today I'm joined by Kevin Lepso, the founder and CEO at ChinaFi. Kevin, how are you doing? Lovely. Good uh, afternoon, or good morning, I think it is, where you are. Close enough. I'm I'm also working out of my living room, or rather, storage room, storage. Uh, be- because I'm in Hong Kong, and every room feels like a storage room here. <laughs> Fair enough. I've lived there for a little bit. I don't know if I told you that, but I lived there for about four or five months when I was at Goldman, so I understand. Yes, yes. It's, um, space is uh, uh, a little restricted year. here, yeah. but uh, it makes for interesting opportunities as well. Fair enough. Can you give the listeners a little bit of your background for more context? Sure. So uh, I was uh, I was born and raised in Canada, uh, born and raised in Canada in Vancouver, uh, went to UBC there, studied business and math. And uh, I didn't jump immediately into, into entrepreneurship. I came to Hong Kong, oh gosh, uh, almost 20 years ago, 19 years ago. I think I've hit that 20 mark. Um, anyway, uh, so I guess I came here almost 20 years ago and uh, did finance. So I was uh, effectively an FX option trader to start. I got, I got into derivative structuring and trading. Uh, did kind of the investment banking um, thing for a number of years, about 12 years. Through that process, I met my, uh, I guess at the time, girlfriend and wife. Um, <laughs> and what originally intended to be a, a two-year stint in Asia turned into, well, you know, 20 years later. And I guess, you know, somewhere along that path, I think around 2012, 13, uh, ventured into tech. And that's you know, for the last seven, eight years, that's kind of uh, what I've been doing and loving it ever since. What is the introduction? So you and I kind of have a similar career path. I always say this to people. You were smarter than I was because you got out way mm. earlier than I did. I did 25 years at Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs and stuff like that. So we've even worked at similar companies. You were an FX trader. I was a portfolio trader. It's all the same kind of noise, right? But what yes. was it about whenever it was that you left where you said, I want to go into not just entrepreneurialism, but tech entrepreneurialism. What was the impetus there? Because you made it through the financial crisis. I can see by the dates that you were at Morgan Stanley, you made it clear through, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I I, I guess I kind of got through the financial crisis. Um, Whether we helped to cause part of the crisis is something else. Um, We were in the, I guess, structured credit and CDO group, but uh, we'll we'll leave that for another discussion, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I, I guess it's, over the years, like Hong Kong, I think just by its very nature, uh, you know, you meet a lot of people who come into the city with a ton of ideas. And finance is interesting in its own right. You get to talk to, you know, very smart people. You get to move in a very fast-paced, cutthroat yeah. environment. And I guess you acquire certain skills, but at some point you kind of start thinking, like, what else is out there? And I think there's this, I don't know if it's, a, if it's an inflection point for people in finance, but you realize that the the skills that you acquire in finance are largely not usable elsewhere in society or elsewhere within (laughs) elsewhere within like the broader world. I'm not sure what that uh, inflection point is, but you know, the the further you stay, the the harder it is to, to transition and do something else. And so um, I think over the years, I'd always tinkered in a number of small ideas on the side, be it like um, building, like recycling, um, recycling bins and selling them in China (laughs) just kind of random side businesses. And it was always been one of those, like uh, with my, my wife and I, we, we thought that if, if you know, taking a financial, appo- financial approach to this, if we're going to move from finance into tech, uh, you know, we should really be doing what we think 
has the greatest you know net present value or kind of the greatest opportunity yeah and has the, has the most likelihood of of success and so that was um, I mean obviously not like the, the primary decision making process but at, at the same rate I, I think that you know thankfully I I did have that that career in finance so um, maybe unlike many other people you have that opportunity to uh, save up some money. Yep. And so it, it, you look at it in kind of a worst case scenario. You hear, you hear kind of the horror stories of entrepreneurship. But uh, from a practical, practical perspective, you have, you have some money in the bank. Um, you have some experience. And you have a network. So in, in the worst case scenario, you well, let's say you take that money and you invest, which, which we did uh, in our own company. You take that money and that, let's just say it vanishes. Then you still have that that experience that you have, and you still have that network. Um, so I think ultimately, in a in a in a risk averse scenario, I think you need at least one of these three things in order to get back on your feet. And so, you know, if money is gone, but we have experience or a network, then you know, um, hopefully, uh, I never need to go back into finance. Although I do love it, actually. <laughs> but um, you know, I or we could find our jobs, um, find jobs back in finance. So that was one of those things. Like you, you only get one chance to do. I think a, a big shift like this in life, and so like let's go for it. Yeah, why not? Worst case right? scenario, yeah. Worst case scenario is we end up back in finance, and maybe you may not have the same career trajectory, but you you definitely get by uh, in finance. Can you talk about the long lasting impact of working? I would just want to say under pressure, right, at a place like Morgan Stanley or Warwick Barclays, right, where even in a non real time trading environment, there's so much pressure on you. How does that transfer to when you move into entrepreneurialism? Oh, uh, I think you never really understand what like like resiliency, grit, determination, and where your limits are. Um, I mean, I think from a day-to-day perspective, like sure, you might have many people yelling at you, and you're yelling right back at them, and there's a lot of swearing going on. Um, it's a it's a pressure cooker, high pressure environment. But right. uh, at the same rate, you realize that you can get through. Like thinking back to the financial crisis, when your 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 book or your portfolio is swinging up and down, you can work two, three days out of the office without showering. And you can still have those moments of mental clarity and, yeah. and the ability to think quickly. And you think that, like, wow, I, I thought I worked hard in, you know, in university, but like, <laughs> but you, you really get pushed hard in this career. And I think it's been fantastic training yeah. um, in terms of like how far you could push yourself. Whether you want to do that is something else, right? <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I guess you know your limits and, and you're able to kind of forecast your your, your mental burnout rate, uh, I should say, from that perspective. Talk to me a little bit about Nodi. Was Nodi the first thing you, you did or the first thing you started after you left the financial world? Uh, yes, it is. So when we left, we, uh, my wife, Catherine, and I, we had this, I guess, I don't know whether you call it a vision, but uh, I guess a, kind of a desire to create, um, uh, I guess, to help reinforce a a, I don't know if the word is disaggregated, but like a, to help promote like a u- unique or a diverse group of opinions. Okay. Um, and so we felt like the world was kind of normalizing. And it was kind of like when you search, when I search something in Google, I, I'm getting largely the same result that you're getting. And so the world is re- reading effectively the same type of information. And so yeah. we create Nodi as this blog aggregator to effectively aggregate and promote these very niche topics no matter what they may be so if i was into something uh and this is before i'd say largely like news recommendation platforms and services so you know right now when you if you're on android or whatever if you swipe left you get all these like uh, recommendations yep but at the time you didn't have that and so we created it 
Uh, and we grew it to about 5 million monthly users. And for a, uh, I guess, a consumer-facing startup or tech product in Hong Kong, that was pretty good. Yeah. And so uh, we felt great about it. That you know, When we crossed the 1 million threshold, well, back when we started, there was this notion that if you're creating a consumer product, you need to get to the million user threshold and then, you know, you'll raise a ton of money and then you're off to the next stage, et cetera, et cetera. But by the time we reached 1 million, the, the, the threshold was 10 million. <laughs> and so, and so we, we'd reached 1 million and they said, oh, that's, you know, like everyone, anyone can do that. You need to reach 10 million. Sure. We're on our way to, uh, I guess, I guess we had that trajectory on our way to 10 million, but around 5 million, that threshold moved again to 50 million. And this was at the time that, like Pinterest came on the scene, yeah. uh, Flipboard was around, and uh, I think it was like great product, but I think wrong place to have launched it. Um, so that was part of our, our learning experience. But nonetheless, we were able to uh, raise some money for that venture, uh, build a uh, completely different network, and uh, yeah. coming back, coming back to kind of transitioning from finance into tech, we built, you know, we had built credibility. Uh, you know, when we first started, a number of VCs would say, like, uh, so tell us about yourself and what's your background. And, <laughs> you know, like, I don't I don't know if it's still the case, but I'm, I'm sure it is. But if you don't go to Stanford, then they kind of like roll their eyes. Right. Um, and then likewise, when they say, oh, you're from finance, they think, oh, you're, you're just another banker. Yeah, you're just a dilettante. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So but but we managed to recruit some uh, some top team members who have um, since gone on and collectively, I'd say our core team. Not our core team, but I guess those that have come and gone, they've gone on to raise over a hundred million themselves in companies of their own type. Wow. So we, we definitely were able to recruit some top talent and uh, and stay on very good terms with all of them. So um, because of that, we were able to get, I guess, what you call like tech investors and validation. So yeah. so that was our that was our first part of the journey there with Nodi. That's kind of cool. And how did that transition into what you're doing now, which is Chinafy? Yeah, I guess a a. Consumer-facing product is very different than what we have now, which is a, a B2B or business-facing product. We started out, I guess, as our traction was growing, we started to look at multiple languages within Nodi. We realized there's almost like a like an arbitrage or an opportunity in you know, Asian languages, simply because a lot of local searches are done in Asian languages, but a lot of the um, content marketing is done in uh, in English. English yeah. yeah, but then we, we realized that, um, uh, I guess we started working with a number of brands doing like advertising campaigns. So if you take, for example, like back to Nodi, we'd have a topic like watches. And we might have 60,000 people a month reading about luxury watches. And so working with some of the the watch brands, they thought like, hey, this is interesting. But, uh, you know, you don't have 5 million traffic on watches itself. And there's a lot of media competition going on as well. And so it was around 2015, 16 or so, we realize that this the media model is changing very quickly, and uh, you know their their lunch is basically getting eaten by the let's call it the platforms uh, like Facebook or Twitter, for example. Uh, and so, you know, as a brand, they could advertise anywhere. And so we thought, how could we? And as a part of the sales cycle, you also need to sell to the brand every you know three six months yep. on a campaign that only lasts that long. So it was just one of those like. I don't know if it's an Asian mentality, but how could we generate recurring cash flows? And and what that means in the tech uh, speak is basically like, how could we build like uh, like a B2B product or, or a subscription product? Um, so from this, we were looking at what are the greatest problems that the, I guess, our clients at the time had, and our clients were um, luxury brands. And their biggest problem was China. Uh, you know, you, you basically 
when we first started, you were still having a number of the, let's call it the greater China leads, still being physically based in Hong Kong. Uh, now I'd say they're almost exclusively based in, in Shanghai or, or Beijing. Right. But, um, you know, they always had this problem of, even though they may understand China, their their bosses back in Paris or, or say in the US, um, they didn't understand China. And they were still very thinking within a web framework. Um, and so we looked at our tech stack and looked at kind of the various, I guess, set of functionalities we had. We had talked to some of our clients and we realized like, hey, I think we can build a product that effectively makes foreign sites like super fast in China. Um, so we spent about a year prototyping that clients. And I guess early last year, we launched, I guess, an alpha or beta of that product. And since then, we're pretty happy with it. It's it's fantastic. And it's worked uh, worked amazingly. So what was it about? Yeah, I want to talk about this, right? Why was it so hard for the foreign websites to get, I'll call it traction or be fast or speedy in China? What was the research that you did? Or what did you find out about it that was so bad? I guess the real question is, are there fundamental differences between the internet in China and the West? Yeah. Uh, in some sense, Mm, well, I, I guess the, the, the elephant in the room here, or at least on this on the call, is the Great Firewall. <laughs> and, uh, and, but, what, uh, but what is that, though? Maybe like spend a moment explaining what that is really, right? So it's a cute little nickname, the Great Firewall, but what does it really mean technically and just realistically? Sure. So uh, I guess the Great Firewall can be thought of in terms of, let's just call it like, like, a, like a basic firewall. And, and uh, the, way, the way a basic firewall works is that um, y- you allow some traffic to go into your room and you don't allow other traffic. Um, and so China's version is is much more, uh, uh, I can say, sophisticated. Yeah. Um, but a number of countries do have these in different shapes and forms. Sure. And so, uh, so China, uh, I guess, it has the Great Firewall where there are certain uh, content that's allowed into China. And so, um, well, let, let's take the the easy ones, for example, um, like say pornography. Right. If I'm a I guess a like government, maybe I want to block pornography or okay. uh, into my country. Um, but at the same rate, then there's the political aspect, which, you know, I don't think we should dive into. But, you know, there's the larger companies like Google and Facebook, which are explicitly blocked there. So because you have um, largely these large U.S. companies that are blocked in China, um, and at the same time that you that these providers also are foundational to the well, let's call it the global internet, the global right. non-China internet, um, with Google as a foundational element. If I am building my website within a Google framework, I might be using my fonts might come from Google, my uh, my piece of JavaScript, which powers this image carousel, that may also come from Google. Um, you know, these components, they're not going to load in China. And so that's really where the, I guess, that's the byproduct of having the great firewall where there is this, uh, blocking of certain domains, which explicitly don't work in China. But what I guess Western businesses or developers realize is that you don't need to use Google font uh, on your website. You can just use like, just put Times Roman as like a, as a font file. It doesn't need to load right. externally from another domain. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, you know, even like a map, uh, you look at like maps and you think Google maps, but there are other map providers, which, which do work in China. Um, and then there's obviously like video, for example, YouTube. So if I have a YouTube video on my website, that that also is not going to work in China. Uh, I kind of digressed a little bit, but that's that's kind of what the Great Firewall does. It blocks certain um, domains from going into China. Um, and because of that, um, websites are dysfunctional, but there are actual workarounds to it. It's just that when you've invested millions of dollars into building a huge complex website, you're then unable to kind of 
re-engineer it specifically for China. And so a lot of businesses are in this uh, environment where they just simply can't figure out how to re-engineer their site. And so we've well, we've figured it out and we now um, sell that as our product. It's really interesting, right? So if I'm on Google Cloud and I'm using Google Fonts and I have a YouTube video, these are all Google products, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to sell something or get attention or get traction or whatever in China. None of that's going to work, obviously, right? Well, uh, yes. Yes and no. So Go ahead. All, all of those won't work except uh, Google Cloud. So Google Cloud is just a hosting service. Yep. They're just like Amazon. Yep. And Amazon does work in China. AWS. Uh, from a, well, I guess there's two, there's two parts of it. If I have a web service or a website that's hosted on Amazon, that can be delivered into China. Um, if it's hosted on Google Cloud, that can be delivered into China. Um, what's generally blocked is the, the domain name itself. So if I have um, www.baddomainname.com, then that is the part that gets blocked in China, not the actual cloud service itself. Got it. So Amazon or Google are allowed in China, and which raises kind of the second element of, I guess, the the solution that we offer, which is that um, on the one hand, certain domains are blocked, such as these Google components or resources. But on the other hand, the Western cloud providers are very slow. So if I'm actually hosting my site on AWS in the US, a general website might take 20, 30 seconds uh, to load in China, even though it has no Google components whatsoever. Huh. So so what we do is we effectively take all those components and move them to a Chinese uh, cloud provider, take it, for example, like Alibaba Cloud or Tencent Cloud. Um, but we host all that content outside of China. So nothing actually resides inside of China. Uh, so there's no need for special licensing or anything. It's all, it's all hosted offshore. But wasn't Akamai supposed to solve some of those problems by having sort of mirrored websites globally, or do I misunderstand the way that works as well? Yeah, so there's there's different ways of doing that. So to, to, to I guess, legally host, a, well, I guess not, not legally, but I guess to practically host a website um, physically in China, uh, you need an ICP license. And to do that, you need an onshore registration, onshore business license and partner. Um, and for many businesses, that's, that's just a non-starter. So companies like... Akamai or uh, Cloudflare, for example, yep. they have onshore partnerships with um, Baidu and um, I forget who's, uh, I think uh, Cloudflare is with Baidu, I forget who's Ak- who Akamai partners with. But those are largely for their international companies, which already have this ICP license in right. China. Got it. And, it, it, and it therefore allows them to work in China. Um, but if I am on Akamai and I have no legal entity, no partnership in China, then I, I no matter what, I, I cannot host in China. And you said, so some of these things load, it takes them like 20 seconds or whatever to load. Why does the timing, like 20 seconds doesn't seem long to most humans, but why does the time really matter so much? I'm not sure the last time you or I waited 20 seconds for a website to load, but <laughs> but, but it must have been back in the 90s. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah. I, get, I get that. But I'm just saying like the time itself, like why does that matter so much? I guess we're in an age where there's such a, there's so much information out there. There's such a high attrition rate when a page takes that long to load. Right. And, and so I think there's a stat from Google which says something to the effect that if your page takes more than three seconds to load on mobile, half of the people will leave it before you even get to that three-second that, mark. That, that's the point I wanted to make. Okay, that, and that's yeah. important for people to understand, right? Because 20 seconds, three seconds, in most people's minds, doesn't really feel that long, right? But the idea is that the speed actually matters from a conversion and a stickiness standpoint because people will just give up and they'll just drop out and that kills your business, yeah? 
Absolutely. So like companies like Google and Bing and Amazon, they spend so much effort trying to shave off like 40 milliseconds sure. and 50 milliseconds because there's a substantial impact. I think there was this notion that if I drop a website by like one second, there's a 7% increase in versions. And so, uh, you know, even on Amazon, they know that when you're browsing um, Amazon looking for products or whatever, um, if they can drop that page loading speed by, you know, 200 milliseconds, you're going to spend, I don't know, I'm making this up, but like 1.6% more. And across a, you know, hundreds of millions of users, that's, has a, that has a substantial revenue impact. Right. So within, within the West, we talk about, you know, again, moving from four to three to two seconds. But as it relates to China, you know, we're looking at like a, a whole magnitude. We're looking at 40 seconds or 30 seconds down to call it three seconds with, with our service. So it's a, it's a very different game. But um, still, speed is a, it's incredibly important. I, I want to make the point, like, I feel like we went through this in the financial services industry like 15 years ago when we talk about speed. Once we had electronic connectivity to the exchanges, when I first got to Goldman Sachs, it took us literally two and a half minutes to send one topics basket. That, that means probably something to you and not so much to people that are <laughs> listening, but it took two and a half minutes. So, and people could see us sending. So it was useless for us to do it because we couldn't send baskets fast enough to get to the mm. market before other people. And yeah. we know the same thing and, and the analogy is there. Once we got the basket sending for those 1700 topics names or one topics basket down to under a second into milliseconds, even then, shaving a millisecond off gave us an edge over Lehman or whomever, right? So I know the way that works. And it's just interesting that it's true everywhere. Yeah, there are, there are so many studies on the impact of time and conversion rates um, and P&L. Uh, and, and in China, I, I, would, I would say it's even greater. If you look at just the, the I guess, a substantial more, uh, a larger proportion of users are actually on mobile devices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, where the where the the, the drop off rate is even greater versus in the U.S., where there's still a substantial amount of desktop users. Right, and the the metric on your phone is just so much different, right? Because you're expecting literally instantaneous, and the eye can actually feel it. We didn't talk about this, but if you go back to the studies you were talking about, the eye can feel the millisecond difference. And when it gets bored, it'll move on to it'll go back to Twitter, it'll go back to Facebook, it'll go somewhere else rather than your site that's trying to generate revenue for your business. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Is can you give any specific examples of sites that people know that you've worked with, or is that is there some kind of conflict of interest there? We we do sign NDAs um, for with businesses, and, and the reason is because it's uh, I guess uh, I'm not I'm not sure why it's well I mean I guess on, on one hand I know why China may be sensitive, on the other hand I don't know why. If you're a global business, then it's quite obvious that you do business there. Right. Um, but I guess the, the the types of clients that we work with are probably not that surprising. Uh, I guess ab absent, um, sorry, I have to bring up the word, uh, you know, prior to, to coronavirus or COVID-19, <laughs> oh, you, uh, you know, uh, it's basically like travel is a huge one, right? Yeah, it must be. And so you look at uh, the travel industry. And so uh, the kind of the key industries that that need faster websites are travel and like, let's call it like e-commerce. Yeah. Um, and so if I am, if, you know, a, a substantial number of my users are coming from China, I need my website to work much faster. Uh, because I can get uh, much higher conversion rates, then they will book on my site, and they will not book on a uh, on an aggregator like C Trip or a Trip Now. Yep. Um, and so, if I'm a hotel, it's a no brainer. I need my site to work fast, and I need to work in China simply because, you know, less than ten percent of people have passports, and I want them to be learning about my brand and booking directly. So, so travel is, um, you know, rewinding a little bit. That's that was one of our key industries, and and I think it'll come back. But yeah. uh, separate to that, there's like like real estate, 
uh, real estate companies, you have to look kind of where do Chinese spend money overseas. And so um, a lot of real estate developers, schools are a big one right now, or uh, universities, I should say. Um, I think during the uh, the first outbreak in Australia, a number of their students were actually back in China over Chinese New Year. And so they struggled with um, trying to maintain online education. And, and for them, education, I think, may be their third, fourth, or fifth largest export uh, in, the, in the country. So uh, it, it's quite important to, to not just them, but the education sector in general. So I'm always curious to ask about sales cycles, right? And I don't need numbers per se, but I'm curious. You know, for so long, like you said, these companies, sophisticated companies, build these very sophisticated backends and very expensive websites. And then they just kind of give up on markets where they just, for some reason, can't get their websites to work. And then you kind of come along and just knock on the door and go, yeah, the thing that used to take you 18 months to do, now I can do literally by pressing a button, or maybe not literally, but like figuratively by pressing a button. Do they believe you? Like, I just want to know what that sales <laughs> cycle is. Because you know what I mean, though, right? You walk in, you go, oh, I got that solved. And they're like, come on. For sure. It, it almost works against us. So like, <laughs> our, our solution is, it's a, it's a SaaS solution. It's a subscription solution. And, right. it, and it works, you know, somewhat instantly, let's say. Um, but when I, when I say like, Oh, we can basically hit a button and it's done. It's almost a turnoff. Yeah. Um, so it's <laughs> so almost like an insult in a way. Yeah. So we've got to saying that it, you know it takes a week to two weeks, and you know depending on who it is, there's also a lot more that's involved in the process. So coming back to the sales cycle, if it's a uh, let's call it like a smaller account, you know they might convert in minutes. They simply come to our website, put their email address. Um, you know we follow up in it, and you know let's let's say they convert overnight. Uh, for the for the larger accounts. There's often a number of discussions which start from typically from the marketing department because they have the profit center or they have the revenue that they can pay for it. Yeah. Uh, so it starts with the marketing and then we get on calls with the tech department. It typically is a long drawn out process with the tech department. And then it comes back to marketing. And then I think the typical sales process, I guess end to end, we're looking at about, uh, I'd say one to three months on average. Um, the education sector, we... It's it's so I guess it's bifurcated. There's those that need it like now, like within weeks, um, and there's those where it might take um, probably like a year. What do you think drives growth for you going forward? Yeah, let me back up for a second. It's like how has growth been so far? I guess is the real question because I don't know like what the you know what the uptake has been. But given the fact that it sounds like it's okay or good, what do you think then drives it more? I guess is the better question. So I'll, I'll touch on two of those. So the first part is that we basically have a few people sign up every day in some shape or form. They basically, on our website, we have these speed tests where you can see visually how your website loads in China. So you can put your website in and there's a little video with screenshots that shows, you know, like uh, frame by frame, how it loads up to like 40 seconds. Uh, so we have that and we might have maybe two, 300 companies or websites being tested every day on our website. And a small proportion of those reach out and actually uh, engage us and, uh, you know, a smaller proportion of those uh, actually convert. But separate to that, what is good for us actually is, uh, I guess, political discussions. Um, and I guess discussions around the, the internet or bifurcation of the internet. And so there's news out recently with like, you know, Google getting involved in managing a uh, trans-Pacific cable. And so while these conversations may be ostensibly a political in nature, I think at the from the business perspective, from the marketing manager or whoever's responsible for revenue, they, they still need to sell their product into China. So the more perhaps technologically um, detached countries become from one another, the, the better it is for our business. And, and we're seeing that in, 
in, in Russia and in India. Yeah, so, so I think the more there is around that and like data protection, the need to house data or data residency within certain countries, I think the more discussion there is around that, probably the better it is for our business. Have you raised any money for this business or did you fund this organically? We funded it, I'd call it organically. So <laughs> it's uh, basically a spinoff from Nodi. And I think to date we've raised probably around $4 million. The bulk of it from the original Nodi project, but as this is a subscription, we we generate cash flow through this business, and so uh, we're able to kind of fund a certain amount of development ourselves. Uh, you know, if we have more money, we can grow faster. But um, you know, we're able to survive. Um, you know, downturns like this simply based off of uh, client revenues. Very interesting. Can you just refresh my memory? I think I asked you this early, but how long have you been working on this? Was it a year? You said a year ago since. Yeah, so we launched this, I'd say, in spring sometime last year, but we spent the prior 15, 18 months, uh, I'd say, working on it in different yeah. shapes and forms. Yeah, the, the, broader, the broader problem statement was that Western businesses have difficulty entering China. Right. And so what is, the, what is the most foundational element to that? And so if we can build that converter tool for the website, you know, then, then what's next? Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of where we're looking next for our business, because the, the next discussion is, you know, now that my website works, like, can I buy some ads on Baidu right. or, or can you plug this into my WeChat? And, you know, there's a whole bunch of other discussions. And so that's that's a, that's an exciting part of our business. But it's also a, a difficult part because we have to make decisions as to as to what we prioritize. I was just going to say, like, that seems to me like another podcast altogether. We can come back in like six months and find out where you actually did prioritize, because I always look at things as a platform, right? So you've built this incredible product and it helps serve people. It helps get you all these clients. And now that you have them, it's like, what else can you plug into that platform that's going to oh, accelerate uh, their business growth even more? Go ahead. No, I, I, absolutely. We, we, we view this as a, I guess internally we call it like a Chinification value chain. Yeah. And so I was so going to ask you about for, that as well. Go ahead. Yeah. So for many of the companies we talk to, uh, you know, some of them may already be in China, but uh, a number of them are, are just starting out. And so, you know, we're helping people take that first step into China. And so if we can show that their website goes from zero traffic to a thousand traffic uh, or a thousand visitors, and some of those visitors convert, then we're already tied into their their tech stack, so to speak. And yeah. so the next discussion is like, hey, I need a Chinese chatbot. Can, can I just plug that in? Or how can I get that? Or I need social. Or again, I need to buy ads. Like, where do I go? What do I do? So we have so many people asking these questions and it's just a matter of like which one of these can we build out and which one has the you know which one can we, can we roll out most easily to our current set of clients and um you know which one plays um to our strength as a, as a platform to kind of reinforce its uh, defensibility as well sounds really interesting i think we've covered a ton of ground actually i just want to say thank you to kevin lepso the founder and ceo of chinafy for joining us today that was awesome kevin yeah, thank you for having me, Michael. This is uh, this has been great. I'd love to come back in six months and tell you tell you where we are. Please do.